Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good evening, church family, and good evening, friends and guests that are with us tonight. What a blessing it is to be here again this evening and to be returning to the series that we have pursued all year long on Sunday evenings by the book. This year by the book has been, well, I thought it might be the letters to the Corinthians, but it turned out to be 1 Corinthians. So, uh, Lord willing, in a couple of years, we'll come back and do 2 Corinthians because, as I've already announced, uh, Lord willing, with 2024, our By the Book series on Sunday nights is going to be the book of Revelation. And so uh, it's always an opportunity for church growth whenever the preacher or a teacher preaches or teaches on Revelation because I will guarantee that just about everybody in this room knows somebody who is at least marginally interested in the Bible and religion and the end of the world that is confused about and interested in the book of Revelation. And if you say, hey, guess what? Our preacher is going to be preaching through the book of Revelation all, uh, all year long on Sunday nights. You might just get somebody who's willing to be invited to come to church with you. So there you go. Uh, just put that there in your toolkit and think about that for next year. But for tonight, we're going to be focusing on a unit. And don't be scared by the length of this unit. We're going to deal with this in a timely manner. But 1 Corinthians chapters 11, 12, and 13 form a unit in the text. And in these three chapters, we find some of the themes that we talked about in the introduction of this study in chapter 1, especially the unity themes in 1 Corinthians, the problem that the brothers and sisters in Christ in the ancient city of Corinth were not unified, and there were several reasons, and Paul wanted to address that and urge them to get unified. All right, And so when we look at an overview of these passages, we see that there were some violations of God's will. Some violations of God's word that had been revealed to them that some in the church at Corinth were embracing. And these, these violations were uh, violations of the proper hierarchy of authority in the church, chapter 11a. The second part of chapter 11, problems with the way they were observing the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, we find that there are problems uh, of each other, that they had a pride in themselves, especially with regard to giftedness that caused them to improperly uh, regard themselves. They weren't humble like they ought to have been, and they certainly weren't unselfishly loving and favoring toward their brothers and sisters in Christ as they should have been. And so when we come to 13, chapter 13, often called the love chapter in the Bible, we find the solution to the unity problem in the church, which is step one to the solution uh, to the unity problem in the world, is that we embrace God's greatest gift to us, Walk in it and live in it. Let's dive into the text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 now, beginning in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything, Paul says, and maintain the traditions. I've underlined that because we do need to understand that there are different kinds of traditions, and the Bible makes this abundantly clear. There are the traditions of man, traditions of men, human traditions. These are traditions that are created by human culture. 
not by the word of God. These are not necessarily bad. Nor should Christians just come into a culture like spiritual wrecking balls with the attempt to tear everything down. When the Apostle Paul came into Greek cities, pagan cities, he didn't come as a wrecking ball. He even complimented some aspects of the way that they were living life, things that were consistent with the will of God. So don't be a cultural wrecking ball. There are human traditions that are good and should be sustained, and there are human traditions that should fall things that are contrary to the will and word of God. But the traditions Paul is talking about in this context are divine ones, ones that are given by the Holy Spirit through apostolic authority. That's what he's talking about. And these things do not depend upon culture and they're unchanging regardless of what the culture believes. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. There's some debate on whether this should be woman or wife, same Greek word. We're going to go with the ESV. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Amen. Good, good, okay. Now, uh, this obviously, to all of us here, is a difficult passage, right? It's a difficult passage for our times. Now, go back 100 years. wasn't even that difficult of a passage. Go back any time farther than that in the history of Western civilization, or Eastern for that matter, not so difficult. Uh, the, the instructions about head coverings and what have you in this section of the text were things that were generally, at least in some form or another, practiced and respected in culture. But around the mid-20th century, all vestiges of, of this culture, of the head covering kind of aspect of culture, began to die away from Western civilization. And it went, went out, uh, maybe not with a roar, maybe with a little bit of a whimper, but it certainly did go out with a great deal of controversy in the church. Now, I obviously don't have time tonight to delve into the meat of this chapter as much as probably any one of you would like me to. I'll do that another time. I'll study through it personally with you if you need that teaching. I'll teach a Bible class on it sometime. But for tonight, I just want to highlight some important points in this text that help us with interpreting it properly. Listen, there is nothing objectively holy about a hat. There is nothing eternally or, object, or objectively holy about the style or length of hair. Nothing universally true about these things. These are situational truths. The practice that Paul taught in the first portion of 1 Corinthians 11, although this is debatable, and I would be glad to discuss some of the scholarly resources on this subject to show you why it's debatable, but, but though it, the details of it are debatable, Paul is definitely trying to teach the Christians in Corinth, not to be cultural wrecking balls with the, their practice of the Christian faith and freedom in Christ in a culture that was not yet developed to be able to listen to it or hear it or see it without coming to war. God's ideal is not for Christians to come in and destroy everything about a culture, but to redeem the aspects of that culture progressively and systematically through the careful and loving and unselfish and patient preaching of the truth of the Bible. And so there are many things that God may be indifferent about, such as uh, how 
men represent masculinity in a particular culture, how women represent femininity in a particular culture. But I will tell you the primary point of this passage is that in the Christian context, wherever it may happen to be, Christian men are called to live as men, to act like men, to look like men, to present themselves as men, to live as men. Women are called in every cultural context in the world to act like women are expected to act in that culture so that the progress of the gospel is not in any way hindered by our libertine rebelliousness. And that libertine rebelliousness is absolutely fundamentally integrated into 21st century Western culture. And it is one of the devilish aspects of 21st century culture that needs to be buried in the grave through the process of restoring a biblical worldview. So that's what that is. Now I've highlighted this. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. What about the high priest? Well, what about the whole Levitical priesthood? Are you familiar with Exodus and on in the Pentateuch and the writings of the Torah? See, the Bible is the key to interpreting the Bible. The Bible does not confuse. It does not mislead. You may find difficult passages in your process of studying the Bible. Of course you will, especially when you come upon difficult texts for the first time. But if you actually have a fairly comprehensive knowledge of the whole book, at least a practical knowledge of the whole book, then you're able to pick out passages that are cultural applications of a truth that are not meant to lay down doctrine that has got to be followed in every generation and every circumstance. Now, the doctrine of this passage must be followed, but it's got to be interpreted to apply so that we actually get the principles of the passage and we don't make the mistake of thinking uh, that the secondary issues are the main thing. I bring this up because it is not objectively universally true that for a man to cover his head, he's somehow violating his relationship with God. Because if you go back and you read the description of the garments of the Levitical priests under the Old Testament system, every single priest wore a turban on his head while ministering in the temple of God. The high priest wore a turban on his head with a gold plaque that said, Holy to the Lord. And he went into the presence of God to offer sacrifice in the most holy place with a hat on his head. Now, what's happening here is not contradiction. That's not what's happening. What is happening is a limited, local, cultural application of a principle. The principle is Christian men act like men. The principle is Christian women act like women. And whatever are the expectations of those gender roles in a society, Christians don't come in like wrecking balls and start destroying that culture. We redeem it carefully through biblical teaching. So we'll continue then the passage. I wanted you to know why I highlighted that. If you understand these little clues of interpretation that I'm giving you, you can work your way through this passage on your own without getting caught up in, in the weeds here. Verse 8, for man was not, hold on, there we go. Uh, let's see, back, uh, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Again, there's conflict here as to whether this means the heavenly messengers, which is possible, or what I think is more likely because the Greek word angelos just means messenger. And it's used for preachers of the gospel as well as for the heavenly messengers. And context is what determines which 
view is, uh, or which meaning of the word is in view. And I could talk about that more if I had more time. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Bear with me, the uh, clicker is wanting to delay. Bear with, for your, or judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? In that culture, it was not. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a great disgrace for him? I don't know. Go ask Samson and see if that's a universal truth. Maybe in between tearing the bars and doors and gates off of cities and carrying them up on top of mountains, he might stop and let you call him a sissy because he had long hair. See how that worked for you. I'm bringing that up to let you know this is cultural stuff. They're not universal requirements of the church in every age and every circumstance. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone, notice verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. That is, it is not Christian to be a contentious person. We are not contentious people. We are not people who get our backs up every time somebody starts to teach us about rules, about regulations and boundaries and rights and those sorts of things like the world does. We are people that understand that human beings were created to be under the authority of God and guided by his law, by his instructions and teachings. And so this practice of bucking every authority, every authority claim, every truth claim about right and wrong and boundaries is not a Christian thing. There's no practice in the churches of God of that sort of thing. So let's talk a little bit about this text. Just very briefly, let's talk about this text. First of all, headship and hierarchy and worship. Paul begins in this context by addressing the concept of headship within the context of worship. And he asserts that God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, husband specifically, and man is the head of woman, specifically wife. Paul explains that during public worship, women should have a symbol of authority on their heads, traditionally interpreted as head coverings or veils, at least while praying or prophesying in the assemblies. Now, this symbol signifies submission to the God-ordained order of authority, which not having submitted to this, there were problems and there was disunity in the church in Corinth. Now, this brings up a potential interpretive problem today. Were women praying and prophesying publicly in the ancient church? The answer, at least in ancient Corinth, is apparently yes. However, the interpretive problem comes when present-day people make too much of this text and use it to outweigh and dismiss other clearer passages in Scripture. We must interpret Scripture consistently and comprehensively and with the universal rule that difficult or more complex texts are to be informed by easier or simpler ones, not the other way around. The Joel 2 prophecy, which Acts 2 verses 16 and forward proves was fulfilled in the life of the early church foretold that both men and women would receive miraculous gifting from the Holy Spirit and some of both sexes would prophesy. And that they certainly did. Philip, who converted the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, Acts 21 verse 9. However, just three chapters later from our text here in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 14, Lord willing, I'll deal with that text next week, uh, Paul expressly forbids women to be the speakers in the mixed assembly. Now, there are several ways that Bible students attempt to reconcile these passages today that I don't have time to deal with. I just want to share these four truths, all right? A, it is widely agreed that 1 Corinthians 11 is one of the most difficult chapters in the New Testament to understand with certainty, and I think that's probably true. B, 
There is no doubt that what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 is simpler and clearer than what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, the principle of male leadership in Christian assemblies is certain no matter what chapter 11 means. C, in past ages before prophecy was sealed up and completed, God sometimes chose to speak through prophetesses in ways that were exceptions to the rule of male spiritual leadership. Deborah, Huldah, etc. serve as obvious examples. However, in each of these cases, the result is that men were convicted of having failed to lead their societies or their communities as they were divinely called to do, and the proper order was ultimately restored. Perhaps this is what was going on in Corinth. D, God can speak through whomever he wants to, so far as prophecy is concerned. But now that prophecy has ceased to be produced... The canon of Scripture is our guide, and the guide clearly says that men are to lead and teach and preach in all assemblies of the church in which capable and willing men are present. In the early church, as has been the case even in recent times in the mission field. Um, let's see. I lost my place. As uh, in the early church, as has been the case even in recent times in the mission field, there were situations in which the only capable and willing teacher of a Christian assembly was a woman. In such cases, the woman must do her duty and she must teach, unless and until a Christian man has become capable and willing. In such cases, the sister would need to convey by whatever means are culturally appropriate in that setting that she respects the principle of male leadership, that she respects uh, that principle and is upholding it with no intent to disobey it. This, I think, is the consistent interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11 and A and its application to the present. Now, let's talk about equality in Christ. Despite the emphasis on headship and submission, Paul balances the argument of this chapter by affirming the fundamental equality of men and women in Christ. He points out here that both men and women are interdependent in the Lord and have roles to play that, though distinct, are equally important. All the problems with the roles of men and women in the church in our times flow not from the lack of teaching in Scripture, but from a rejection of Scripture in one way or another. Those who are transgressing these boundaries today have made an identical mistake to that of the ancient Corinthians. They have confused the public exercise of giftedness as the premium measure of human value. Listen to me again. They confused the public exercise of giftedness as the premium example of human value. Just as folks are doing today. Exactly the same thing. When the actual measure of human value, all human value, male and female, is in submission and self-sacrificial service to God. Amen. Paul closes this section by asserting that in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, emphasizing the mutual dependence and partnership between genders and the Christian community when the ancient and universal order is respected. Now we move to the second part of the chapter. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be reckon, recognized. Even in a church, 
that is working very carefully and diligently to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. From time to time, there are going to be factions and divisions. This is all a part of the work of the Holy Spirit in order to identify those who are genuinely Christ's people from those who are not. God often purifies churches. Sometimes in a generation, there's so much dead weight that needs to be purified out of the church because of folks that have grown too comfortable and have fallen asleep in Zion. Sometimes because they've embraced unhealthy and unscriptural views of the will and the work of the Lord. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Now, I just want you to see that, that Paul says this, translated into English from the Greek. What? You know, he's, he says this, are you kidding me? You know, you're, you're actually doing this in the Lord's Supper? But I mean, this is the point that Paul is conveying to them in this particular section. Are you out of your minds? What, do you not know anything? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or notice what he asks next. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, brothers and sisters, you need to pause and let that statement sink in for a moment. Because if it teaches you absolutely nothing else, it teaches you that holy communion, when the church comes together and surrounds the Lord's table to partake of the Lord's Supper, this is a very serious period of time in our lives. It's very important. We are communing with the Spirit of Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit. And in the Spirit, in essence, we are at the scene of the cross and we are participating in the altar itself, in the offering of Christ, just as the Old Testament saints under the Jewish system would eat of the food offered on the altar, and thus they would spiritually participate in the sacrifice and join in this meal with God. When we partake of the Lord's table, this is, we are fulfilling that principle of Old Testament worship and our worship of Christ. We are being fed. We are having our thirst quenched symbolically by the elements of Christ himself, by his body and his blood. We are participating in the offering of Christ in a spiritual sense, in a symbolic sense, as he was offered on the cross. And it is absolutely important that we do this respectfully in every way. That is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. See, if we're honest with ourselves about who we are and what we're really doing, we judged ourselves by the standard of the word, then we would pass away from the judgment of God. He would have no reason to judge us anymore. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined. It's love, even here, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. 
So let's think about the Lord's Supper just for a second. Sacred, solemn, participating unworthily is a serious offense to God. We must examine ourselves carefully before we partake. What does that mean? Does that mean if I have in any way sinned in the past week, I'm not worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper? I mean, if that's true, I doubt there are very many Sundays when anybody sitting in the pews is worthy of partaking the Lord's Supper. That's not it. It's not a test of your having achieved perfection yet. It's just you are to look into your heart and make sure that your motives are right. That your heart is centered on the right thing. That is, thinking about the body and blood of the Lord offered for you on Calvary. And not only that, but discerning the body doesn't just mean you think of the body of Jesus on the cross, but you think of the body that that sacrifice has built. And that is the church of our Lord. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we think of what Christ has done for us. The sacrifice of his flesh, the spilling of his blood, the resurrection from the grave, which all of that led to. We think about that as most important. But what we also do is we also, at least in our minds, we think about the brothers and sisters in Christ that together with us form his body on this earth. We think of the fact that we're all partaking of the Lord's table together. We celebrate the fact that God has given us eternal family friends and relationships, brothers and sisters in Christ that we can build eternal relationships with that we don't ever have to say goodbye to ever. And that's what the cross of Christ has purchased. And so before I put that bread on my tongue or before I taste that cup, I need to think about my brothers and sisters in Christ. If I sinned against anyone in this room, if, if I have and I'm aware of it, I better not partake until I make that right. Am I thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch this afternoon? I'm wondering if I'm going to catch the best parts of the ball game? You better not touch your lips with that stuff, man. You better not touch your lips with it if that's what's on your mind. I'm not a legalist and you know that. But when the Lord says, if you partake of this unworthily, you eat and drink damnation unto yourself, condemnation unto yourself, I'm just going to have to preach that with all the power the text gives it. It's not a joke. It is absolutely not a joke. Moving on now then to chapter 12. Uh, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the Spirit. Notice I put the word Trinity on the side there. You know, we have the same Spirit, we have the same Lord, we have the same God and Father. And in all activities of exercising giftedness, for the purpose of carrying out the work of the kingdom, we are partners with Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 9, to another, uh, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. I notice that. That hasn't changed. Much in this chapter has changed between then and now. That has not. God put you in the body right when and where he wanted you to be there. In fact, if you're here tonight, it is no coincidence at all. The Spirit of God has had something to do with that. And I hope you will open your mind to that. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the, the members may have the same care for one another. Now what he's getting at here, just as an insert, is he's talking to the most gifted folks in this church. The most gifted folks in the church of Corinth were the greatest sinners with regard to unity in that congregation. It, it's easy to get arrogant if you think of yourself as a gifted person. It's easy for people that exercise their gifts in a church context. They get complimented for it, appreciated for it. Those that become in high demand as speakers can start to feel that they really are the best thing since sliced bread. And they start to think, well, I might be just a little more important to the mission of Christ than this brother or sister down the pew from me that can't string three words together in communication of the gospel. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Now, what Paul is saying in this context is if you are a person that God has gifted highly, he has gifted you for the purpose of helping and serving the brothers and sisters around you that have not been so gifted. And that's your purpose in the church, not to be exalted and lift up and glorified, but to get down on your knees in prayer for your brothers and sisters in Christ, to be willing to wash feet and to take care of people, to bear burdens and to be thoughtful of the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ that God has equipped you with the giftedness to be able to meet and help. That's what he's telling these gifted folks in Corinth to do. So I'm going to go through the rest of this text for the sake of time. He ends this section by saying, earnestly desire the higher gifts, the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. There were supernatural spiritual gifts among the members of the ancient church and they were imparted by the Holy Spirit according to His will through apostolic authority, specifically through their symbolic act of laying on hands, Hebrews 6, verse 2. Paul was the last eyewitness of Christ's resurrection and the last apostle. There being no living apostles in the church today, there are no longer supernatural gifts, which is not to say our natural gifts do not have a supernatural origin. It simply means none of us can work miracles until Christ comes again and we're given eternal power and authority in resurrected immortal bodies. Nevertheless, Paul teaches principles that apply to the same force, to the nature of the body and use of all of our giftedness, supernatural and natural. And these principles are, number one, all gifts from God are meant to empower service to himself and others, not the glorification of the gifted individual. 
Every church member is equally important regardless of how gifted or ungifted they or others think they are. And in fact, the least gifted members of the church are like our most immodest body parts. We are our most uh, <laughs> unpresentable body parts, Paul says in this context. And upon them, we practice the greater modesty. We take special care of those parts of our body. That's what Paul is using as an illustration here in this context. Number three, all of us are interdependent. None of us can stand and prosper alone. We need each other, and we need to value each other accordingly. As equals, regardless of giftedness, because all of us have been given the greatest of all gifts, which is the more excellent way, it is love, specifically the love of Christ, which is our new commandment and our purpose in life. Because anyone who can agape can do any and everything God has in mind for him and her to do. And that's why this section now terminates in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels. Now I want you to notice what Paul does here. It's extremely important. There is a whole family of folks in Christendom, Pentecostals, charismatic folks, who through misunderstanding Paul in this chapter have created whole practices of pagan glossolalia and brought them into the church, the so-called tongue-speaking of our Pentecostal friends. Well, they misunderstand what Paul says here. What he's doing is he's coming on the heels of what he's talked about in chapter 12 of the fact that there were gifted folks in Corinth that thought they were the stuff. And if they had a brother or sister in Christ that couldn't do what they could do, they thought that they should be treated as superiors to them. And Paul is saying, you've missed the point. You've missed the point of everything. You've missed the point of the giftedness, the gifts of healing, the working of miracles. You have certainly missed the point of prophecy. Because all of these gifts the Holy Spirit gave were designed to lead you to have the love of Christ in your heart. So that becoming unselfish and humble, you would be like Jesus and become a servant to your fellow man. That that was the purpose of the gifts and they missed the mark on it. And brothers and sisters in Christ, today in this culture that idolizes talent, believe me when I say we are tempted to do the exact thing. There's a terrible thing that's being done to young people raised in our period of time now. Because of the culture of our media uh, celebrating and idolizing talent, we've got young people that think that if they can't sing like Pavarotti, that they don't have value in life. If they can't throw a football, you know, like one of the great quarterbacks of our time, Tom Terrific or something, they don't have value in this life. You know, if they're, if they're not great at science or math, the world tells them that they're not living up to the measure of what makes a person valuable in our world. And brothers and sisters, that is damnable heresy that comes from Satan that does not come from God. Every human being is valuable in the eyes of God. Everyone has a purpose. Everybody's got a gift. And if you've got five, good for you. But Jesus wants the service of that one talent man too. And if you put a stumbling block in his way because you think you're so great, be prepared for judgment because you're not filling up the measure of Christ. So Paul didn't speak with the tongues of angels, nor did anybody else. He's saying, if I spoke in tongues more than any person ever has and didn't have love, it's a waste of time. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I have prophetic powers, notice, 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Nobody ever has had that degree of knowledge on this earth. Not even Jesus during his earthly ministry knew literally everything. You see what Paul's doing here? If I had more prophetic knowledge than any prophet has ever had and didn't have love. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, never a doubt, never a fear, only faith, but I have not love. I'm nothing. You see what Paul is saying? If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned as a martyr, but have not love, I gain nothing. 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 That's the preeminent value of agape love in Jesus' system of life. So how can I be valuable to Jesus? How can I be useful to the cause of Christ? How can I be a good brother to my brothers and sisters in the Lord? I'll tell you, by being patient, because love is patient and kind. By never envying or boasting, by refusing arrogance no matter what, by never being rude, by not insisting on my own way, letting somebody else have their way. It's not being irritable or resentful. That's how I serve the cause of Christ. Do you see that? I don't rejoice at wrongdoing. Never would I rejoice with wrongdoing. As so many people in our world are trying to encourage us to do. I'm going to rejoice with the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth will help me to God. I'm going to bear people's burdens, all of them that I can. I'm going to believe people. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're going to have to prove to me that they're liars before I will regard them as liars. Man, I'm going to be hopeful. I'm going to hope always. I'm going to endure anything that comes my way. That Christ allows me in his providence to suffer. I'm going to endure it to the glory of his name because I understand one thing. God has never given anybody anything greater than the love he demonstrated in offering his only begotten son to save the whole world. And there's nothing, nothing that we can do apart from love that has any value at all. Nothing. And so, brothers and sisters, if we embrace this mentality, we never divide the cause of Christ. We never break the unity of the church, ever. All we do is build it up. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. They did. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I know fully, then I will know fully, even as I have been known. And so now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Brothers and sisters, the aim of miraculous powers in the early church was to complete and confirm the scriptures. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. This was apostolic responsibility and only through them were these gifts given, Acts 8, 17 and forward. 
Paul was the last apostle Jesus ever chose, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. And the aim of Christian scripture is love, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5. Agape love is God's greatest gift, Colossians 3 and verse 14, and is the perfect that the completed canon of scripture makes possible for each of us who believe in and follow scripture. Therefore, that which ministered in part the miraculous gifts in the early church have ceased for the duration of the age. But now, faith, hope, and love abide. Brothers and sisters, be faithful. Be full of hope. But above all, let's love. Let us love. The lesson is yours this evening. Appreciate your patience. Needed to get through those three chapters tonight. And with your patience, I have done so. This evening, if you need to respond to the invitation of Christ, if as a baptized believer you need the prayers of this church, the front pews are open. This evening, if you've not obeyed the gospel, this is your opportunity to do it. Don't hesitate. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.